Welcome to Reconomy, a podcast from First American where we discuss economic issues that impact real estate, housing, and affordability. I'm Odetta Kushi, Deputy Chief Economist at First American, and here with me is Mark Fleming, Chief Economist at First American. And today, we are setting our sights on 2021. Will the housing market continue to drive the recovery? We'll talk about the good, the bad, and the likely. So let's jump right in. So Mark, you and I have talked a lot about how housing has historically led us out of a recession, and that's exactly what happened in this pandemic-driven decline. But what has surprised you about the housing rebound? Well, I don't know if the housing market even rebounded. It was it just hardly even skipped a beat. So did it pull us out or did it just ignore the whole thing altogether? Uh, roughly two-month pause in home sales um, with the initial lockdowns in March and April, which of course everybody sort of had to figure out how to do home showings and things like that to continue to sort of sell homes, uh, it really didn't skip a beat. And I think that's largely because um, there were a ton of good fundamentals about the housing market going into the pandemic. And as we've talked about and many have written about in the last few months, like this recession obviously was very different than past recessions. There was nothing fundamentally wrong with the economy. This was a truly, as economists say, exogenous shock. And um, and that's one of the main reasons why the housing market, there was nothing fundamentally wrong with it. And so it was able to rebound very quickly. And in all likelihood, you know, not to spoil the end of the podcast, but um, maybe do better than many of the recent years past. Absolutely. I mean, nominal house prices today are at their highest, 19% above the housing boom peak in 2006. And I know saying that might scare a lot of folks. Um, they might start to enter you know, the conversation of bubble territory, but that's not the case. Um, we've been saying it time and time again, this time it's different, but maybe we should be saying last time was different, right? I mean, it's this time around, as you were saying, the fundamentals have been exceptionally strong and what fueled house price appreciation this time around were strong fundamentals. And we'll get into that a little bit in the way of the tailwinds. What are the tailwinds for the housing market and what, have, what has driven this? this house price increase. Yeah, I mean, you make a good point. Maybe last time was different, but I'm also kind of doing, how do you do an eye roll on a podcast here? Like, <laughs> oh my gosh, house prices are 19% higher than the peak. There must be something wrong. Mm, there's just not enough there. As we've talked about before, a lot of that has to do with interest rates and it's not about the nominal value. It's about the purchasing power pace value and that's much lower. So this time is different or last time was different because actually house prices were overvalued last time and they're certainly not but for a few accepted markets in california um mm -hmm. overvalued this time around and that's one of the reasons why there's so much continued strength in the housing market the fundamentals as you mentioned are are very very good and you know that's really helping this time around with uh, the sort of strength in the market in the face of the adversity of the pandemic. And let's let's talk about those, these tailwinds, why why this time it's different, but also why we anticipate the housing market to, to remain to be strong. And again, spoiler alert, 
for our 2021 outlook, but let's get into some of those. And the first you've already touched on, and that's mortgage rates. And we have something uh, called the potential home sales model, which looks at the fundamentals that are driving home sales in the market. And one of the most influential uh, factors in 2020 was low mortgage rates. And I mean, low mortgage rates, his uh, below 3%. His, historically low never before seen low rates, never to be seen again low rate. Oh gosh, we've been saying <laughs> that for three years and it keeps getting lower. You know, the, the, you know, the fallacy of economic forecasting is, you know, don't ever try and forecast interest rates and or, you know, more specifically, if you're a real estate economist, mortgage rates, because you will always invariably be wrong. The caveat to that might ironically be well, they're so low right now that the odds of them going higher must be really high because they really cannot go much lower. Uh, we're running out of space for who gets paid out of the mortgage rate, let alone you know the opportunity cost or the risk-free rate in the treasury yield, you know, effectively close to zero. Um, you know, and let's keep in mind, slight digression. I know we may not have planned on this, but oh, negative rates, negative rates. Well, even if, say, treasury yields go negative, which I'm not suggesting that they will, but let's pretend in this stranger upside down world that that actually happens, the mortgage market wouldn't follow suit. It would stop lending would right. be the solution to that problem. Okay, well, you you did this. You opened up the economic wonky Pandora's box. And so I'm just going to um, go in after you and just say, you know, it's very hard to forecast interest rates. We do know that. And a large part of that is because the 30-year fixed rate mortgage is loosely benchmarked to the 10-year treasury yield. And as we well know, the 10-year treasury yield is influenced by geopolitical factors and just a lot of things um, that, that we can't forecast. We can't forecast politics a lot of the time. But it's also influenced by something else. And and that is the Federal Reserve buying mortgage-backed securities. And so one of the reasons that we're feeling a little bit more confident in the 30-year fixed-rate mortgage rate forecast is because the Federal Reserve has indicated that it will continue to purchase mortgage-backed securities, which will put downward pressure on long-term yields and thereby mortgage rates. And so one of the fundamentals that we have in our 2021 forecast that we anticipate to continue to boost the housing market is low mortgage rates. Right now, the consensus is about 3% with the lower bound at about 2.8 and the higher bound at 3.3. And so that should really continue to boost the housing market. Box checked. Fed says won't allow it to happen. Okay, moving on. You're right. <laughs> exactly. So we're getting a little bit more confident in that just, just because of some of the, the Fed announcements. And so low mortgage rates, let's assume that that's going to remain steady in, in 2021. There's something else, something much, much bigger. In fact, the biggest that will be influencing the housing market in 2021, and that is the millennials. And I say the biggest because they are officially the largest generational group, about 72 million strong between the ages of 24 and 39. And this is a group that is entering their peak home buying years. The, the bulk of this generation turned 30 this year, entering that prime home buying age, starting to form families. Wait. I thought they didn't want to buy homes. I'm confused. They were never going to buy homes. Now, were they? What What's just happened? 
the, the forever renter, uh, the millennial misnomer, the avocado toast generation, right? All of these things that, that have dominated headlines in years past. And that is just not the case. We're seeing more than half of all mortgage, purchase mortgages originated by Fannie and Freddie going to first-time homebuyers. That's not to say that all of those first-time homebuyers are millennials, but a lot of them are. We're also seeing that the homeownership rate has largely been driven by younger millennial households. And this is a trend that we absolutely do not anticipate to see going away. So so avocado toast tastes better in a home that you own than one you rent? Ooh, oh, and where is that yes. home? That avocado taste tastes great in the suburbs. And the suburban trend that everyone's talking about, this was something that we saw even prior to the pandemic, right? I mean, this buying a home is a financial decision, but it's also a lifestyle decision. And once you start to form families, you start to migrate to the suburbs. You get the fence, you get the yard, you start having the kids. And so this was a pre-pandemic trend that maybe is maybe is slightly accelerated by uh, the pandemic and the need for a home office, if you will. And so we don't anticipate the demographic tailwind to go away anytime soon. And in fact, a forecast um, that we've recently built shows that millennials will be the source of at least at least 15 million home sales in the next 10 years and we always like to caveat that this is a, an extremely conservative estimate because it does not take into consideration the higher educational attainment and household income of this generation and we've done multiple studies which shows this is the most educational group and that is yielding some some purchasing power benefits in the form of higher income and so I we think do that's I think that's a key point um, because, you know, this is a trend that we've seen for the last couple of years. There's you know, the household formation is transferring from renting to owning. That started about two and a half, three years ago. I think one of the surprises, or maybe in hindsight, not so much a surprise, but um, initially one of the surprises was the robustness of that millennial demand in the face of the pandemic. And, you know, while there was the pause, it's, wow, all of these millennials still out there, still looking to buy the home over the course of the summer. All of that pent-up demand that really came into the housing market, despite the economy, the economic impact of the pandemic, and that's really driven by two really important factors, which is that one, there's still that low rate environment, so you know, better time to buy than ever because of your purchasing power, your house buying power. But two, many of those millennial households are educated, higher income, not the ones that were unfortunately being laid off in the service-based um, you know, COVID recession. And so there's this bifurcation of you know, who gets impacted by the recession that for luck of the housing market really leaned much more on or is leaning still much more on the renter than the potential millennial homeowner. Right. And a lot of this forced savings, if you will, during the pandemic, we couldn't go out to restaurants, you know, you're not going out shopping as much. That resulted in historically high savings rates. And as we know, millennials typically will label uh, a down payment as the biggest barrier to homeownership. And so you have this generational group that maybe didn't lose their jobs during the pandemic. And then you have forced savings that are boosting their savings accounts and allowing them to put down, more down on a home. And so all of this is actually um, good news for, for those millennials. All that uneaten avocado toast at the urban restaurant goes into a down payment on a suburban home. And it comes full circle. <laughs> <laughs>
And let's just talk about the third aspect that we're considering a tailwind, but it could also be a headwind. We've had conversations about this. Why would you see a supply and demand imbalance in the housing market as a tailwind? As a tailwind? Well, uh, if you're not so well, let's go back to the basics of supply and demand. This is sort of one of these classic econ 101s. If you don't have enough supply of something relative to all that demand, millennials, high house buying power, all of that demand that's out there, well, that bids up prices and bidding up prices generates wealth. And so there is this effect of, you know, this I'm earned, I'm gaining more wealth. I can afford to move that into the next house. So there's that tailwind benefit um, of possible also just simply I'm gaining more equity and wealth and in a sense actually creating a protective barrier against um, bad things happening. So back in we talk about the global financial crisis, there were two triggers for foreclosure. The first trigger is an inability to pay. Um, I'm delinquent on my mortgage. The second trigger was a lack of equity. And the unfortunate thing about the global financial crisis was both of those triggers, you know, dually impacted things. And so you had lots of people with inability to pay and lack of equity, and that's what caused foreclosures. With such a tight supply and demand dynamic and all the house price appreciation that has accumulated wealth to the existing homeowners today, even if they have an inability to pay situation, because, you know, let's be real, this, you know, we're only halfway recovered from an extremely severe economic downturn. There's still a lot of economic hardship out there. But for most homeowners, even if they have that economic hardship, they're going to have lots of equity in their home. And while this is not ideal, this is why we call it involuntary sale, is an option instead of foreclosure. And so we expect the benefit of all of this equity, all this high house price appreciation caused by the supply and demand dynamic being imbalanced actually creates a protective barrier against foreclosure and ironically, that involuntary sale into a tightly supplied market becomes the potential home for that desperate millennial wanting to buy something, the opportunity to something for of something to buy. So the protective issue is um, it mitigates the risk of foreclosure this time around. Right. And it also helps to explain why the house price increases that we're seeing are rooted in something fundamental, and that is the supply and demand imbalance. And we've looked at the data, which shows that prior to 2008, the housing market was significantly overbuilt. Um, and, and that helped kind of to, to lead to the crisis as we know it. But this time around, we are severely underbuilt relative to household formation and the demand for homes. And that's call resulting in this. That let, let's call that the headwind, right? Because right. this supply and demand um, imbalance has been growing for a number of years. It's not new this year. It's more exacerbated than ever before. We estimate uh, our housing turnover, that is the share of the stock of homes for sale at any point in time, is at you know quarter century or more lows at 1.3%. That's a very, very tight lack of supply partly driven by the fact that there are a lot more households out there today that have been formed in the last decade that we've not kept pace with building housing stock for. And so that that imbalance of not lack of a supply of something for sale, but literally a lack of housing writ large has grown to sort of, you know, the you know, the highest point yet. And 
know, the good news for the home builders, at least, is if you build it, they will come. Um, you just can't build it fast enough to really solve that problem. This will be a tail, uh, sorry, a headwind for a number of years to come. Right. And not for lack of trying from the home builder's perspective, because we've seen housing starts increase, uh, you know, even in the face of of construction headwinds. Um, and, and we've talked about that a lot. The construction industry, you know, doesn't have enough employees. Um, it, it There's, you know, uh, regulatory burdens, there's cost increases. And yet, because they know that if they build it, someone will buy it. And with the household formation and the demand, a lot of the millennials, they're, you know, mid 20s, they're not even quite 30 years old yet, and they're still forming households. We have baby boomers living longer than ever. And so household formation will continue to rise and and that demand will continue to rise as well. And it's just that supply just isn't isn't quite keeping pace. And so certainly that is a headwind and this house price acceleration is good for that existing owner, not so much for that first time home buyer, because a lot of this inventory crunch is actually happening in that lower price tier, that first time home buyer price tier. And so there's there's some struggle with that for the first time home buyer. Certainly, but there is another headwind, not just supply, and that is uh, the labor market and the uncertainty of the labor market. We've obviously seen a, a pretty strong rebound in the labor market, some some good numbers um, since we hit that trough uh, in the spring, but those gains have been slowing. And we've also looked at foot traffic data, which is indicating a slowdown in economic activity in more recent weeks. And so what do you think about that? What do you how do you foresee the labor market impacting the housing market going into 2021? While not as extreme as the sort of forced stay at home orders and the lockdowns that were widespread in March and April, I think we've learned a lot more in the following six months that that's not necessarily how it's going to happen exactly the same way. That said, you know, it doesn't it doesn't take um, much for people to respond of their own volition and will to you know take discretionary consumption spending, going to restaurants and um, bars and you know doing all of that discretionary spending and then choosing not to do it um, because of a fear of of getting sick. And so what we are seeing in those declining foot traffic numbers is the fact that people are, choosing to curtail that consumption spending. You mentioned savings. Savings is sort of not continuing to go down at the speed that it did before because people are willingly, uh, voluntarily sort of reducing that consumption. And that has the intended consequences on the service sector employee base. And so we see consequently the labor market slowing down because consumption demand is slowing down. Um, You know, that the truth is, follows with the pandemic. The good news is vaccines are coming and, you know, we will get beyond this. But until that point, um, that service sector of discretionary spending activities will be very um, easily impacted by our voluntary decisions of uh, consuming or not consuming based upon the risk. Um, And that slows things down from a labor market and creates either slower income growth, which reduces your house buying power, um, or... Um, the risk of, you know, not being able to make your mortgage payments. Right. And unless we forget that most of the U.S. economy is driven by consumption, over 70 percent is driven by uh, by 
consumers. And so, uh, you know, a slowing labor market certainly has greater implications for the broader macroeconomy as well. And then, of course, for the housing market. But we do know that in the winter months, housing is usually a little bit quieter. And so, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel here is the vaccine. And, and we do think that by the time spring rolls around, the housing market constants, as we're calling them, or the fundamentals, low rates, uh, millennial demand, limited su supply are expected to keep our home buying demand robust. And we do know that the continued supply demand imbalance points to continuing house price appreciation in 2021. And so this is kind of our forecast. We do anticipate home sales to remain robust and house price appreciation to continue into 2021. I wonder, you know, you're right. The housing market tends to go into hibernation in December and January and February. Um, and th so that's a good thing because when the issues that we're facing for the next few months until a vaccine comes along will be the 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 hardest. Um, yet this is the housing market's slowest time. So you really look to the spring and say, okay, well, what's going to be different in the spring versus next year? Uh, next year versus this year? Hmm. Not a lot. Right. Low rates, high demand, lack of inventory. So we sort of pick up. Uh, where we're leaving off right now come next spring with the additional benefit, obviously, of like, likely uh, more vaccine rollout and addressing the pandemic and, and the consequential economic decisions. So as you said, you know, 2021 is going to look a lot like 2020 did sans pandemic. Absolutely. I mean, there's there's forecasts indicating record purchase purchase originations in 2021, and a lot of that is because of these housing market constants that we just discussed. And so uh, it's looking like housing will remain a bright spot in 2021. Would you agree, Mark? I would agree, and it's a great way to end what has <laughs> otherwise been a pretty tough year. A very, very tough year indeed. Well, thank you, Mark, very much for your insights. Um, great as always. And thank you, everyone, for joining us on these, this episode of the Reconomy podcast. Be sure to subscribe on the Reconomy podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. You can also subscribe to our blog at firstam.com economics. And if you can't wait for the next episode, you can follow us on Twitter. It's at Odetta Kushi for me and at Mark Fleming Econ for Mark. Until next time. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Reconomy podcast from First American. For even more economic content, visit us at firstam.com economics. This episode is copyright 2020 by First American Financial Corporation, all rights reserved.